You know, when you're working at a big law firm, there's no real management of people. It's just get the job done, grind through brick walls. And as I've climbed up in my career, I've noticed that it's really important to surround yourself with the best people and put them in the right roles and then to motivate them. Welcome to this week's HPS cast. I am your host, Colbert Cannon, and let me tell you a little bit about HPS and what you're listening to today. HPS is a global investment firm. We manage over 60 billion in assets for a broad range of institutional investors. That capital is invested across private credit and public credit strategies. I sit in the private credit side of the house, and I spend time finding opportunities to deploy our capital into a range of interesting situations, mergers and acquisitions, refinancings, etc. The central premise of our show is simple. We are entrusted as stewards of capital by our investors, and we entrust that capital to management teams to help drive value creation. This podcast is intended to talk to key relationships of HPS about how they got to where they are today and how those experiences help them drive value creation on a day-to-day basis for themselves and for their stakeholders. This podcast will introduce those business leaders to you, our listeners, and it is our hope that through those interviews, you will get a little bit of a better sense of who we, HPS, are through the lens of our key constituents internally and externally. We're talking today with an executive with whom we've done a number of transactions over the last decade. His company has been involved in several different refinancings and recapitalizations, culminating ultimately with a large term loan refinancing that we executed in 2017. So when I thought about business executives uniquely qualified to understand what HPS is and what we do, he was a very logical choice. He is the CEO of a global loyalty marketing business based in Stamford, Connecticut. And if you've ever accumulated loyalty points on a credit card and then later redeemed them, chances are his business helped that transaction behind the scenes. And while I won't tell you who their customers are, odds are you've got one of their cards in your wallet. His perspective is especially valuable because there aren't that many people who have an accounting background, are legally trained, have actually practiced as an attorney, served as a general counsel to a large company, and who have been in multiple C-suite positions. But rather than list his whole resume, let me introduce this week's guest, Todd Siegel, CEO of CX Loyalty, formerly known as Affineon Group. Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks, Colbert. Before we get to your background, can you just introduce yourself and explain to our listeners what is CX Loyalty and what you do there? Yeah, sure. So uh, as Colbert mentioned, I'm Todd Siegel, CEO of CX Loyalty. And CX Loyalty designs, administers, and fulfills loyalty and engagement programs across the globe. We work with blue chip companies and we work with them to create solutions that create loyalty for their customers, greater share of wallet, and greater top of mind. So let's use a specific example. If I have a credit card in my wallet from a large financial institution you would know well, where you administer their program behind the scenes, if I accumulate points and then want to get a trip, what do you actually do behind the scenes? So every time you swipe your card, you accumulate points. That accumulation of points goes onto a points bank or a system. We oftentimes are the technology that connects with the financial institution to track how many points someone earns. And then those points get turned into currency. And that currency could be redeemed for a bunch of items, whether it be travel, merchandise, gift cards, or cash back. And we are the engine that fulfills those solutions for our clients and the customers. Perfect. So let me take you back then to the very beginning. You attended SUNY Binghamton as an undergrad before joining ENY as an accountant. 
At the time, what drew you initially to accounting work? You know, when I went into college, it was something I know I wanted to get a job right after college. And I figured what were some good professions, that there was stability, there was a need for young people. The world needs accountants. The world needs accountants. Yeah. And I was always interested in solutions. And to me, nothing's better than math because there's always a right answer. So it was a good way for me to start getting clear right answers out of college. You made a decision after a couple of years to go back to law school, to Fordham. Yeah. Um, why law school at that point? So when I was working at Ernst & Young, I, I was lucky enough to work on a bunch of different projects, some of them in the pure auditing space and others in the transaction services space. And when I spent time in the transaction services space, I got to work on a few merger and acquisition deals from the accounting side. And I saw what the lawyers were doing, and they seemed to be the quarterbacks of the deal. And I felt that that more suited my desires. So you go through law school, you graduate, and you end up at Skadden Arps, a prestigious law firm here in the city. And it, it seemed like in a corporate law you know, role, sort of yep. as you thought about. Talk to me about that decision-making process and how you ended up down that path post-school. Yeah. So I was in law school, and I was in law school in New York City. And as the interview process came about, I definitely wanted to get involved in the M&A side of things. Uh, I wasn't really interested in litigation, wasn't interested in a lot of research. I was interested in a lot more transactional work. So I met with a number of firms. And when I interviewed with Skadden, it just connected with me. It seemed to be the thing that resonated with me there was they talked about a meritocracy. Mm. People weren't put in any boxes. It was like, hey, you're going to come on board. You're going to get a lot of responsibility and you're either going to sink or swim. And that's the type of challenge I liked. And, and it's a great firm, had a great reputation. So it was a pretty easy choice for me. What kind of deals did you work on when you were there? Yeah, I worked on a number of uh, front page Wall Street Journal M&A deals. So yeah. whether it be the ExxonMobil merger was one of the deals I sure. worked on. I worked on a number of deals with private equity groups, and I worked on a number of deals with Sendent, which ultimately led to me leaving Skadden and joining Sendent Corporation. Oh, that's interesting. So I feel like there's a time in every lawyer's life where it's you either keep your head down and make partner or you go in-house somewhere if that's, that's right. the path. So you had done a couple deals. You're making the decision. Why leave the law firm at that yeah, point? Yeah. So at that point, I was working at Skadden and I was working in the M&A group. And as you could imagine, in the- Not sleeping a lot. Yeah. In the mid to late 90s when I was there was the M&A boom. Yeah. So it was a lot of hours. My wife got pregnant. And so we decided, is this the life we want to live where I would be working 15 to 20 hours a day, weekends? And uh, I decided I would wanted to try to have a work-life balance. Yep. It was a great decision. Um, I have nothing but the utmost respect for Skadden. I think it's a great firm and a great job. But for me, the opportunity presented myself to go on and continue to be more of the quarterback architect from the inside yeah. and in-house. And I thought it would be a great challenge. And What was Sendent at that point? Yeah. So Sendent was a combination of the HFS assets, which were the real estate assets so and the car rental companies. And it was merged together with uh, CUC, which was a, a host of marketing services companies that ultimately a lot of them were sold off when those two companies combined because of the challenges that CUC had. The interesting thing is the first internet transaction was done at CompuCard through the division that I ended up uh, running. That's amazing. So those assets eventually get carved out and purchased by the private equity firm Apollo. That's right. Tell me about that process, what that transaction was like. Yeah, sure. So it was interesting. So at the time, Henry Henry Silverman, who was running Sendon Corporation, decided it was time to split up the company. So he took, as I mentioned, the real estate assets, the travel and hospitality assets, the car rental assets, 
and started to sell them. And that was the theory that some of the parts was more than the value of the whole? The, that was, that the was the theory. Yeah. That was the idea yeah. behind it. And so what Sendent did is it took the management team that I was part of and combined together four businesses, the membership business that we just referenced, the loyalty business, the international business, and an insurance business, and grouped them together into the Sendent Marketing Group, and then held an auction. And we were lucky enough to partner with Apollo in October of 2005 through an LBO. Now, you went from a division of a large public company to owned by a legendary private equity firm. Yes. How different were those two experiences? Uh, meaningfully different. Yeah. And what I would say is putting aside the personalities, the biggest difference was we were never the core platform for Sendent Corporation. We were a bunch of different businesses that were generating nice cash flow, but we weren't the travel assets, which was core. We weren't the real estate assets. What was great about the private equity partnership is we had committed ownership for the first time in my tenure, and it allowed us to do a lot of things. Uh, for example, we're owned by Sendent. We were very, very little incremental investment in our platform. It was just keep the wheels on the bus. Textbook corporate orphan, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, when we were bought by Apollo for the first several years, we went, you know, invested heavily, went through a bunch of acquisitions, and uh, it's it was great. So it was uh, exciting times. So after the LBO, your business carried a debt load. It went through various corporate actions mm -hmm. to manage that debt load over a long period of time. One of them most recently was they sold off a business segment, an insurance company. Yes. Talk to me about the decision to do that. Why yeah. and, and how? And give us the rundown. Yeah. So when we were packaged together from Sendent Corporation, there were four different businesses put into one. They all kind of related to each other, but the insurance business was a little bit of an outlier. So we felt that uh, it would be better to unlock the value of CX loyalty and invest in the high growth loyalty market and then really sell the insurance business at a, a reasonable multiple to someone who could then take that standalone and make the appropriate investments to grow that business. So it really was a win-win transaction. So you've heard me on this podcast refer to the company as Affinian as well mm -hmm. as CX Loyalty, and that is because the name of the company changed post yes. that sale. Tell me about that decision-making process. Sure. So Affinian which was the successor to Sendent Marketing Group when Apollo bought it, was designed to showcase what we were doing, which was predominantly affinity-based marketing. Fast forward 10 years post the LBO, and we really saw the loyalty and customer engagement side of our business take off. And yet we were still perceived both in the marketplace and internally, we still had a number of our employees thinking of us as this affinity-based marketing machine. And while that is part of our business model now, our core focus now is really on the end consumer and our clients ensuring that we create the right loyalty solutions. So when we got rid of our last big piece of the affinity-based marketing by selling the insurance business and we did another recapitalization, we felt it was the right time to really let the market know, let our clients know, let our employees know that our focus has changed. We are now all about the end customer experience, and that end customer experience, the reason we're so focused on it is it leads to loyalty. So CX, customer experience, leads to loyalty. CX loyalty just made sense. Makes a lot of sense. 
So then now with the core businesses on the loyalty side that we're focused on today, what are you excited about in terms of the opportunities there and how do you see that evolving over the next couple of years? Sure. So I think there's a number of things. So number one, the the macro trends, right? So when you're looking at your strategic plan, when you're looking at what problems are you solving, is there a market there? And I think the market for loyalty programs and solutions continues to grow. Why? So I think there's a, you know, if you think about the different industries, you know, financial institutions, number one, you have credit cards. At this point, credit cards are pretty much a commodity. Yep. So how do they distinguish themselves? If you think about it, 10 years ago, they were distinguishing themselves with balance transfers and low APR. Nowadays, if you check your mailbox, it's all about miles, bonus miles, triple points. The reason for that is the consumer likes to get rewarded for doing stuff that they are doing every day. And if they're going to choose your card over someone else's card, there has to be something in it for them. And it becomes an arms race, right? You That's know, exactly Triple right. points are there because somebody offered double points. And, yeah. and it's great. So what we've seen is the number of memberships and loyalty programs continues to grow. It's over 3 billion in the US alone. And obviously- 3 billion of what? 3 billion memberships and loyalty uh, programs. Now, there are not 3 billion consumers in the US, yeah. but the reason that there are 3 billion is if you think about your own personal experiences, you probably have a couple of airlines, couple of credit cards, your pharmacy, your grocery, your, re, you know. Your, Some that I've forgotten about, surely. Exactly. Yes. Right. So I think that that continues to grow and it's growing at about a 25% Kager. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it, each one of those loyalty programs needs the technology and the platform to administer it, needs someone to help them design it, and then needs someone to help them fulfill on the promises and the rewards that they're giving their consumers. Now, and that's where we play. Why don't your customers just do it themselves? Yeah, because I, I think, you know, if you think about people are v- like to do what they're good at, and a lot of big companies understand that managing a loyalty program and interacting directly with their consumer for something that is not core to what they're doing every day, they're better off outsourcing that. So at the end of the day, one of the things that we do and one of our biggest redemption items are travel-related solutions. We operate one of the top 10 travel agencies in the world. It's just not known because you don't see it as CX loyalty. You're seeing it as bank X's travel center when you're redeeming it, client Y's travel redemption services. So we're doing billions of dollars of travel redemptions every year. And we have a huge supplier relations network, huge technology investments, and our clients are able to take advantage of our scale by outsourcing it. I've always thought that was an underappreciated aspect of your business. You are systemically important to airlines and to hotel companies. You're an incredibly large consumer of it that nobody's ever seen because it all happens behind the scenes. And even more so than that, we are not competitive to their core marketing efforts. So what do I mean by that? If you are with Bank X and you have Bank X points, you could only go through my platform to redeem those points. So we are not competing. We are not like the OTAs, the online travel agencies, who are competing directly with United, American, Delta, JetBlue. with with publicly quite complicated relationships. Exactly. That's exactly right. We are behind a secure logon. Our pricing cannot be seen by the public. And 
the only way that travel merchant is going to get access to the consumer with the currency they have is through us. So it's actually a mutually beneficial relationship, which has allowed us to create what we believe are superior deals in the marketplace, given that uniqueness. So growth and loyalty programs grows your business. Yep. There's some macro trends in your favor. What do you worry about over the next three to five years in terms of risks? The biggest risk, I would say, for our points-based loyalty business in the U.S. would be any regulatory changes to interchange. What do I mean by that? If you're familiar with the credit card industry, the way it works is every time a consumer swipes their card at a retailer, the issuing bank is guaranteeing, in effect, payment from that consumer and it's taking the risk, and it's paying the merchant. In exchange for that, the merchant pays something called interchange back to the issuer, and it's usually around a little over 200 basis points. That money that the issuer is getting back is the funding mechanism for its loyalty rewards programs. If there is a meaningful reduction in interchange, it could meaningfully devalue the loyalty points programs, and that would be something that would have a non-insignificant impact on our business. Do I think that that is likely to happen? It's been talked about for years. I don't think so, because I do think lending credit inherently that comes at a risk, yeah. and I think people are willing to pay to not have to worry about that risk. You've worn a number of hats at what was Affineon Group, is now called CX Loyalty. You've been the general counsel there, you've been the CFO, and you've been the CEO. That's not that common. Uh, you know, you see people who've had two of those three roles, but to carry all three is unique. In your current seat running the thing, how has that made a difference, your exposure to those other pieces of the business? I credit a lot of that to, besides my former CEO, Nat Littman, is my work at Skadden, this whole meritocracy attitude. That's how I've always approached things. I've always been focused on what I've been asked to do, do it well, and then the rewards will come. And you put the business first and you do it diligently. So my legal background was the natural transition in. But while I was there, you know, I was never shy about voicing my opinions. And I think I've, that- I've known you long enough to know that's true. <laughs> exactly. So I think that that's helped out. And I think when I would voice my opinions, whether it be on a purely legal side, but when you're, you know, to be a really good general counsel, you have to understand the business as well. What I always told my team when I was general counsel and what I tell my general counsel today is your job is not to be a roadblock, but to be a roadmap. Yeah. And I think that fortunately people saw that and gave me new opportunities and I tackled them. What's your favorite thing about being CEO? Um, I would have to say the people that I work with. So I think that that, you know, you could say that that could be at all different levels, but that's really what's kept me at CX Loyalty has been the people. Uh, as far as what do I like about the role of CEO, you know, I was hugged enough as a child, so I'm very comfortable making decisions. I like listening to others. I like problem solving. And I'm also very comfortable having the decision rest with me. What's the hardest part about your job? The hardest part about the job is, you know, getting back to the people aspect of it is it's very rare that someone doesn't have an agenda when speaking to me. So even people I've worked with for a long time and I trust them implicitly, I have to just sift through all the information I'm getting and try to make a decision that I feel takes into account everyone's point of view and 
is good for the business overall. So I think the hardest thing is really, you know, the thing that I like about it is making the decisions. I also think that's the hardest part of the job as well. The best people on your team always have inherent biases just by definition. Everybody. Everybody does. Yeah. And then sitting in my seat, one of the things that's been a challenge and it's a great challenge, but it's the truth is, like I said, for the most part, everyone has an agenda. So having those trusted advisors who you could bounce ideas off, who really are there just to advise you has been really helpful in my career. Do you have a process when you need to make a hard decision? You've made some tough mm-hmm. calls over the years. You've made decisions to buy businesses, sell businesses. You know, How do you do it when you're wrestling with something really hard? What's your process? Yeah, so my process is I want to make sure I understand everyone's point of view and I want to understand the facts. I'm a big believer in fact-based decisions. I also think at some point, perfection is the enemy of the good. So you could be frozen by not making decisions. So like I said, once I feel that I have all the facts and my process is to go to the different people and to repeat to them what I heard their concerns are or their excitement is about a particular issue. And as long as I have captured what I hear from my team and from others, what the positives and negatives are, I'm very comfortable making the decision. And then once you make the decision, and I have a saying, and I think I got this from Jeff Bezos, is there's going to be disagreements. But once we make a decision, it's, okay, I disagree, but let's go. And once a decision's made, we've all got to push forward. Doesn't mean you don't revisit it if facts and circumstances change, but you can get frozen in an organization if you constantly question your decisions. If I were a young lawyer at a firm who's Mm -hmm. looked at your career path with admiration, what advice would you give them about getting from that seat to an operational seat like you have today? Yeah. So uh, number one, I continue to believe this is I think you have to do what you've been hired to do, right? So if you're a lawyer and your job is to negotiate and write a stock purchase agreement, you do it and you do it well. So that has to be number one. Do what you've been hired to do well. The second thing would be learn about the industry when you're doing something. And so, you know, a trap that people could get into, particularly at a law firm, is if you're in the M&A group and you're just working on acquisitions or sales and you're focusing on the core documents, it could get a little bit mundane and How many times could you look at reps and warranties? But if you dive into the industry and speak to the business people and hear what's important to them, why it's important, you'll learn more and then you'll become more valuable as a trusted advisor. So the one thing I've always done is, and I surround myself with people like that now, and I was always one of those, I believe, in the past, is being a good thought partner to whether it be your clients, your peers, your boss, or people who work for you always being a good thought partner and being comfortable going outside of your lane. But remember, you always have to do what you've been tasked to do first. Makes a lot of sense. We worked on a transaction together most recently, uh, this $1.4 billion financing in 2017. That was a transaction that we were quite pleased with that worked out well for you guys. With now, you know, a couple of years behind it, tell us about that experience. Why'd you pick us? Because you didn't have to. And and how'd you think about all that? So one of the roles that I serve is fundraising, capital raising, and dealing with our investors and our lenders. And when we recently did our recapitalization a few years ago, we were given a number of options. We could have done the traditional bank syndicate route or 
there's a, a firm out there, HPS, and given, number one, the level of certainty we felt partnering with HPS, having known Colbert, but even before Colbert, the team at HPS who started digging into it really showed an understanding of a complex situation and a complex business. Now, I'm not saying our business is the most complex, but there are a number of different drivers for our business. On the revenue side, on the expense side, we are in multiple locations and we've had a number of disparate businesses, we've had acquisitions, we've had different ownership. And the way that HPS was able to come in and in a relatively quick time frame understand the key drivers of the business, focus on the right things, led us to believe that it would be a great partnership. The other thing is, you know, given the challenges that we could have had and given the challenges that every business faces, it was important to us to partnered with someone who viewed it as, you know, a partnership. And, uh, you know, some of the early conversations that we had with some of the senior leadership at HPS, including yourself, was, listen, obviously we're lending this because we think it's a good return on our investment, but we also want to see the business do well. So, you know, we're going to aggressively negotiate deal terms and documents. I was going to say that if you didn't, so thank you. Yes. <laughs> but that being said, if there's ever something that the documents either don't allow or we need to fix, feel free to come to us, you know, and if it makes sense, we're going to partner with you. So just the whole attitude was something that we didn't really see from traditional bank and syndication groups. And it was something that has really played out as well as I could have expected. Well, that's great to hear. So, Todd, for the last part of the podcast, we have a segment we like to call Best Ideas. Okay. So we've talked about your role, how you got there, and how you create value. And sometimes that can feel very theoretical. We like to end the podcast by asking a question about something specific that's added value to your life. It can be at work or outside of work, yep. a business practice, a new habit, a TV show, movie, book, whatever it is. Todd, you're our guest. So we'll ask you to go first. What's added value to your life? Yeah. So I think one of the things that has been meaningful has been the way you manage people. You know, when you're working at a big law firm, there's no real management of people. It's just get the job done, grind through brick walls. And as I've climbed up in my career, I've noticed that it's really important to surround yourself with the best people and put them in the right roles and then to motivate them. And, you know, something that someone recommended that I read a few years ago was uh, Drive by Daniel Pink. I'm not sure if you've ever read that. It's a great book. It's a great book, but it really described for me in a way that, quite frankly, I didn't fully appreciate the whole carrot and stick approach of motivation for employees is outdated. And people need, I think it's mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And I feel that my job as CEO has been to make sure I, the people I have in their roles can do it well, mastery, give them enough leeway to be able to manage their own P&L and business autonomy, and then clearly define for them how their role fits within the overall CX loyalty vision. And it just makes so much sense. And it's amazing that until I read that book, I was always like, you could solve problems with money or fear. Yeah. And it's so much better and has meaningfully changed how I, I view my day-to-day -day activities. So, well, Especially managing as disparate of a business as you do. You have a global operation. Right. You have people all over. As you say, carrots and sticks only get you so far with the, with the span of control you have. That's exactly right. And quite frankly, cultural norms. I mean, as you just mentioned, we're in over 20 countries. Understanding the difference between people who are based in Italy 
or in South Africa or in Brazil versus people who are based in Richmond, Virginia, Stamford, Connecticut, or Eden Prairie, Minnesota. You have to understand human beings in order to manage them. And so that's been a really enlightening and beneficial moment for me over the past several years. Well, I'll offer my best idea this week, and, and it actually dovetails very nicely with what we've been talking about today. It was ultimately inspired by your work in CX Loyalty's business. You know, as a loyalty business, you guys are ultimately focused on human behavior and how to incent it. That's true. Not only how do you think about with your management team, but obviously the whole point of your business is how do we drive behavior in customers? And I recently read a great book that's all about human behavior and human decision making. You may have heard of a woman named Annie Duke. She's a mm -hmm. legendary poker player, yep. and I know you enjoy a good game of poker. She won a gold bracelet at the World Series of Poker in 2004. And so you can imagine she knows a thing or two about how to predict you know, behavior and how people are going to act. And she wrote a brilliant book called Thinking in Bets, which is all about how to make good decisions with very limited information. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it. It's, it's a business book. It's a strategy book. It's a psychological book. I mean, it's a poker book on some level, but it's really not, you know, and her whole premise is that she thinks about how ultimately every decision we make in life and especially in business, you never have perfect information. And so how do you prioritize the right information and how do you affect decision making with the limited set of information you have? I think you'd enjoy it. It's very much, you know, your kind of thing. Thanks for getting it for me. Uh, there you <laughs> Thanks to our guest, Todd Siegel. Check out the episode description if you want to learn more about his company and find that great book, Drive, that he recommended. And thank you to our listeners. We appreciate you all tuning in. This podcast was brought to you by At Will Media with HPS Investment Partners. Check out the show notes to find links to some of our best ideas. And remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'll be back next week with a new episode. But in the meantime, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app.